difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Epps. And Genevieve Kosky. No Tasha Robinson on this pairing, but we're happy to have freelance critic Jordan Hoffman back. Jordan, how was your week? Oh, man. I had a great week. I mean, I, I was aglow because we had that great conversation about Rachel getting married. It and I carried really, you right through. Really loved that movie. I was so happy to revisit it. What else happened this week? Ah, it rained one day. My wife yeah. made a whole meal out of asparagus, and then I forgot. <laughs> and then the next day morning, I went to relieve myself, and I'm like, oh my God, somebody lit a tire on fire. What the hell's going on? But it was just uh, just me. Does that happen to anybody else? Hey, In you- Chicago, it's only after we drink Malort that we have that experience. <laughs> I don't even know what Malort is. I've been to Chicago, but I don't know what Malort is. Next time you're here, we'll find some for you. It is a really foul-tasting thing that some people develop a taste for. Malort. Not not me. John Hodgman is a big fan or at least an ironic appreciator of uh, Malort, or who even knows? I think he's he's had enough at this point to where you have to call him a fan. (laughs) You know, but I do, you know, listen, Chicago's all right. I'll tell you, you got your, your hot dogs with the, with the celery salt and the mm-hmm. pickle in there. We do. You got the Italian beef sandwich, especially when it's dunked in the grease <laughs> and it's slopping all over the place. It's good stuff. It's good yeah. stuff. We, big like, fan. we like it. Yeah. Big fan of that town. Thank you. So that's how my week's been. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So well, on last week's show, which we recorded a week ago, we talked about Rachel getting married, Jonathan Demi's drama about an addict who goes straight from rehab to her sister's wedding. The intense awkwardness of feeling like the black sheep in the family also carries through this week's film, Emma Seligman's Shiva Baby. Here, the screwed up young person is Danielle, played by Rachel Sinat who is also testing the patience and goodwill of her loved ones as she gets dragged to the shiva of a family friend. Her parents, played by Polly Draper and Fred Melamed, are frustrated by her directionless life, typified by the vague feminist major that she's chosen for herself. When Danielle arrives at the shiva, however, there are much bigger landmines. One is her ex-girlfriend Maya, played by Molly Gordon, who has many cutting barbs at the ready. The other is Max, played by Danny DeFerrari, a sugar daddy who has been partially financing her life in exchange for sexual favors. To make matters worse, Danny has arrived with his blonde shiksa wife, Kim, played by Diana Agron, and their baby in tow. Nobody knows that Danielle and Max have met before, let alone in the nature of their relationship, but it proves increasingly difficult for Danielle to keep these explosive revelations under wraps. We'll talk about it after the break. females, particularly um, female entrepreneurs. Cool. In the future. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Awesome. Danielle! Don't Danielle! Please, Sonia! Moira's is here and her daughter's Stephanie. Jessica. Whatever. You should really talk to her, you know? No. It's just a job. Hi! Hi, Hi Mom. I'm so sorry for your loss. No funny business with Maya. Thank you. You think everyone that's bi is experimenting? You have zero gaydar. Excuse me, kid. I lived through New York in the 80s. My gaydar is strong as a bull. You can't just, like, show up to, like, 
the after party for a shiva. I, and like reap the benefits of the buffet. She lost so much weight. Yeah. You think she has an eating disorder? I'm just trying to major again. Sweetheart, feminism isn't exactly what I call a career. It's not my know? career, it's a lens. Shiva Baby is sort of a, this very small, charming little indie movie that sort of has just burbled up lately. It's become a, th- a thing. So I wanted to know uh, if it lived up to billing. What did you all think of this movie? You know, I mean, sometimes you you hear about a, a little indie movie that you think you should check out, and then you never get around to. Uh, and and I worry there, there's there's there are more as good as this that I've missed over the years because it's, I, I, lo- I love this movie. I thought it was, it was fantastically good and, uh, and gripping and, and really, uh, assured like, you know, uh, Sullivan managed, you know, maintains this really, this really intense tone to the whole thing, uh, that's done well. And, and in the ending, which I'm sure we'll get into a point uh, at some point, it really got me. I, I love the end of this movie. Uh, I love the whole movie and then the end of ending, especially. Yeah, I uh, I really liked it too. At the same time, it's a movie I do not want to revisit again. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's, it's a nightmare in many yeah, ways. <laughs> yeah, th- 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 this is like, like like we've we've talked on this podcast how I I don't really do horror. That's that's changing a little bit, but this is my version of a horror movie. Like I was just curled up in a ball for a, a large portion of this movie. I think I probably covered my eyes at a, at a couple points, just like having just social anxiety made (laughs) manifest on screen like that is it's affecting, you know, it's not that I didn't enjoy watching the movie. Like it's very funny in a lot of parts. I think the performances are great, but it was a very like visceral experience (laughs) that like left me tired. Like we talked about being a little exhausted after Rachel getting married. Like I really, really felt that after this movie. And it's funny because it's short. It's like, yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you, but I think it's like 80 minutes tops. Yeah. Yeah. 77. 78, I think. 77. Yeah. 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 But, you know, Keith, you used a really great word, assured. I mean, this is a first-time filmmaker. She was 24 during production, which was, you know, that's the age that Spielberg was when he made uh, Duel, right? So that's like, to do this at age 24 is impressive as shit on a budget of 25 cents, and, you know, cramped in a house, which, by the way, how do they get the house? They found it on Airbnb, which, oh. you know, they, they they cut a deal on Airbnb. And then when they contacted the owners, they're like, hey, is it cool if we shoot a movie there? And they're like, well, you're really not supposed to do that. It says that you can't do that in the Airbnb contract. But OK, you know, we'll work something out. Uh, it's, I, was, I, I wonder, I, the, the cutlery on set must have been pretty dull. <laughs> If that were the, if they were if they shot at Airbnb, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it's it's just a great. And the other funny thing was like because I had the good fortune to interview the director, she was telling me like other little tricks they had to keep it. You know, they had no money, so it was like, well, where did you look for a house? Did you look Long Island? I was like, no, it had to be in the five boroughs of New York City. So it was somewhere in way way out Brooklyn, like as far out of Brooklyn as you could get. But the reason it had to be in the five boroughs, there's like a clause in you know whatever sag deal that if the set is within the five boroughs then the production does not have to drive the actors to set because they can get there from public transportation (laughs) which i mean you know did polly draper really take an an hour and a half subway from the upper west side to this house in, in brooklyn sure i hope not but you know as far as the deal with the guild is concerned that's why that's what they did so it's those corners being cut that they had to do and you know and now she's kind of off to the races i mean she's got a deal um, she has a new project that she's working on with the actress Rachel Senat that's uh, you know a little bit right. under wraps, and she sold Shiva Baby as a concept for a television series. You know, not the same character, but sort of like 
a similar thing. So it's exciting that this is a new talent that is we're going to be hearing a lot from hopefully what marvel property is she is she taking on jordan do you know <laughs> you know well there is uh there are a lot of jewish superheroes in marvel Kitty pride yeah sure yeah you could she could do kitty pride she Ooh. could do the thing she could do sabra the uh the uh, israeli superhero that you don't hear much from these days hmm. um but you know maybe god willing emma seligman will not do a superhero movie. maybe maybe <laughs> my uh, jewish wife Kitty Pride is her favorite superhero character, so she would sure. be, she would flip out if, if such a, if a movie was made around Kitty Pride. So isn't also Kitty Pride is is she a queer character? Isn't she bisexual? I think, I think now, yeah, yeah. There's 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 been some ex- in uh, Oliver. I'm sure could fill you in, but in, yeah. in the Marauders, he'll know more than I do. But there's been some uh, experimentation. Yeah. I believe. I, I don't know. You're, you're you're talking me into this uh, Emma Seligman Kitty Pride idea. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Sh- you know what? I'm sure I would not be surprised if. Uh, if we thought of it, I'm sure somebody else in Hollywood has. So uh, that's funny. So uh, I guess to continue with first reactions, I mean, I did admire this film greatly. I, I, I don't mind the intensity of these situations. I like being uncomfortable, and, and this movie did that. It reminded me a lot of Punch Drunk Love because the intensity of it and the soundtrack, the way the soundtrack enforces that intensity in you know a situation that just keeps building up and building up and getting thornier and thornier for danielle i mean i I like that tension and i think it's very funny it's just such a witty movie so it, it has that going for it i mean i think if you're just put in a deeply uncomfortable dramatic situation for 77 minutes maybe this film doesn't go down that well or as well but it's really funny and clever and and uh and i I think the key character for me as far as that goes is uh is maya i think i think that is a really great performance by molly gordon and and uh she's always there to just cut Daniel down to size like whatever history they have together she is just prepared to just turn the screws at every opportunity while also i think the film sort of develops that relationship and gives something gives it you know a real heart by the end uh so i i appreciate that but one of the things i, I wanted to get into and this is where, where i turn to resident expert uh jordan hoffman what was just the the event itself and the tenor of the event and the way people interact with each other this is this feel authentic to you jordan the, to the experiences you've had in in uh situations right. like this yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you uh, invited me because representation <laughs> is important. And, you know, as a as a 20-year-old bisexual <laughs> woman at NYU studying feminism, I feel, what? what? I'm sorry, I've been holding on to that joke all night. Yeah, no, there there is a lot of Jewish representation in film, but holy shit, this one really knocks it out of the park. This is, Emma Seligman can retire tomorrow at age 25 and know that she's made a legendary Jewish film. There are others, but this is one of them uh, because it is not heavy. It, it, it is heavy because, you know, she, you feel for her, but, you know, she's a 25 year old girl. She's figuring out her life. It is ultimately upbeat at the end. And, uh, you, you know, it's a funny movie and um, it's all set at a shiva. Now, it's possible that people listening to this podcast don't even know what the heck a shiva is. A shiva is basically awake, but it's a little different. It's a Jewish wake. I mean, basically, what the premise is. Uh, And depending on how religious you are and how you want to do it, you know, there's no set rules. But when someone dies, the the immediate family has what's basically an open house and anybody in the community is supposed to come by. 
and um, you pay your respects and, you know, you don't call and say, I'm coming at eight o'clock. You just show up and it's a revolving door of people coming in. And the idea is that the immediate family is not supposed to do anything. The community is supposed to do everything for them. So what that really means is that you come and you bring food. And you bring, you know, a corningware full of something that's going to go in the fridge. And four days later, the family's going to eat it. And, you know, you're going to lay out a big spread and people are going to eat off of that all day and into the night. And then if you're more religious, there's other things where the immediate family is supposed to be seated on low chairs for some reason. I don't know what that represents. And, you know, there are other things where if you're more religious, it gets a little more patriarchal. The men are supposed to go off and pray every X amount of minutes. And I remember seeing some of that. It's like, well, we need 10 men to go off in the other room and pray and and whatnot. But the, the number one thing I remember is like the first time going was asking my mother what the heck a shiva was. Why are we going? And she explained, you know, cousin so-and-so died. I barely knew who cousin so-and-so was. And, and she's like, we're going to a shiva. And I said, well, what? mom what's a shiva and she said well you know when somebody dies the family is sad so if someone dies and let's say a husband dies the wife is going to sit there and cry and cry and cry and cry and if she's alone she's then going to get sad that there's nobody there to talk to and she's just going to cry now because she's alone and it's just going to continue so if there are other people there to talk to it's going to keep this person from being too upset. That was like the number one thing that that I remember was the idea was to go and to talk. And if somebody's crying, you're supposed to talk and laugh. You know, that's there was like a Band-Aid for that. And that's the number one thing that I always remember about these things is that you're it was my mother telling me that when I was like five years old. And uh, there's some truth to that. I mean, it's like a, it's like that at a wake. Also, you go and you tell stories and there's no greater co- a collection of comedians than at a, a, a funeral or a shiver at a wake. Everybody's really funny. Everybody wants to laugh. And you sometimes kind of have a good time, which feels weird to say. But, you know, you see some people. Oh, I love that. Uncle so-and-so. I never see that guy. That guy's a riot. And you, you talk to him. So, you know, that's sort of the cultural thing is that it can last four or five days. You show up with food and you see people you never see other than at events like this. Um, and it's a little bit free form um, in terms of there being uh, histrionics or people running up and down the stairs and whatnot. It's just a great setting for that, you know, and those aspects really, you know, it just, it just felt very real to me. I mean, clearly this is a woman who'd been to a lot of these events in her life. Uh, And then just sort of the way the food was laid out and the way there's the aunt who wants to jibber jab. And then there's, Oh, she's trying to hook him up with him. I mean, there's, that's just part of life also. So from that aspect, it really did resonate with me as someone who had been to a lot of these over the years. It's interesting hearing you put uh, Shiva in the context of like being there to support the people who have been left behind. And it's interesting in the context of this movie because like we get almost no time <laughs> with like like I, I I'm still not even clear on exactly who died or I, I'm, I'm assuming the the woman who Danielle kept uh, offering to take over cleaning duties for may have been the bereaved I don't know it feels like this movie is much more concerned with the claustrophobic drawn out nature of sitting Shiva than the actual like act thereof. Yeah, no, this is certainly maybe not the best advertising for for Shiva. Uh, I mean, that's one of the great early jokes of the movie is when she goes, Mom, who died? I mean, it's a a great moment. 
But it's also funny because I, when I spoke to MXL, I mean, she's from Toronto, and um, you know, Toronto, like any major city in North America, does have a significant Jewish population. But uh, to hear her tell it, they're very, very close knit, more in Toronto than say Chicago or New York or LA or something, and so everybody knows everybody. And I think it's almost a case of like, if there's a shiva, you go, hmm. even if you don't know, you know, like, who is this person again? Oh, I don't know. But that person's holding a shiva. It's like, that's how tight the kid. She even said, like, everybody knows everybody on blah, blah, blah street, you know, whatever the street is. It's like the main drag. So that might that might be something that she actually observed at some point or or felt like she barely knew who the person was that she was she was with. But um. Yeah, I mean, the the other th- moments of sort of authenticity that really struck me were, you know, a lot of the Yiddish slang, which does not get, you you don't have to know it, I mean, you kind of get it, but uh, Polly Draper says a lot of, throws a lot of Yiddish slang, slang around, and, you know, there's a whole back and forth about the proper way to pronounce rugula, <laughs> and if you don't know what rugula is, you don't really, ma- it doesn't really matter, but it's just funny to hear mm-hmm. people say that word and try to pronounce it correctly. And then there's the climax at the end. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but we're, spo- we're, spo- um, we're a spoiler podcast. Prayer- so you, can give, you can give stuff away. Well, uh, all right. So the prayer books fall on the ground, and you see her kissing the prayer book, and that's something that a Jew would instinctively know to do. And perhaps someone who's not Jewish and doesn't know too much about Jewish culture would say that book fell on the ground. Why? Why is she kissing it? That's a little bit weird. That's just like. You wouldn't even think to explain that it's weird. That's just something that you do when a prayer book falls on the ground. The Jews are the people of the book, right? They we love we love reading. We love books. That's why we all have eyeglasses. We all ruin our eyesight. Um, so it's you know that's like numero uno is you know we love our scrolls. We love our books, and when they fall on the ground, you kiss them. And uh, you know that's it, there probably are a half dozen other little touches like that that didn't even dawn on me. But, uh, you know, that's a good example of sort of the uh, the authenticity that you'll find in this movie. Yeah. I mean, there is also the, the Jewish goodbye is a big part of this movie, too, because as, as short as this film is getting out the door and getting in that van. <laughs> oh, I mean, my that's God. A, the that's, van. that's almost like that's almost like a third of the film. <laughs> I think the van is when I was the most curled up into a ball of this whole movie. Uh, <laughs> so I good. The van. I think the man, I mean, to spoil it, you know, a little bit of spoiler, but, but uh, I feel like the van is the movie, you're tying it all together. It's like, you know, I, I don't like you. You and I have a complicated relationship. You're my daughter, but I don't really understand you, but we're all in this van together. You know, I, I love that. It's such a, such a nice little metaphor. Uh, and then the, the hand holding at the end, ah, the ending of this movie is, a, I don't know, chef's kiss. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for for sure. And the other thing that kind of stood out for me, you know, I've certainly been to Wakes, never been to a Shiva, but one one of the things that for me and at least for me and my family Wakes and are pretty similar to family reunions in that nothing is beyond the surface. I mean, you you ask questions, you say how you're doing, fine, etc., you move on. But there's a level of candor here that is striking and maybe you need that for drama but maybe it's also kind of a cultural thing of just like of sharing too much of of asking probing questions of of wanting to know everything and to and to to, to you know for somebody like danielle like what direction is her life going and what's she going to do next and what can, how can i make an arrangement for her there's a pressure there that seems either very specific to this character in her situation or maybe specific to an event like that 
you know, many cultural stereotypes come from a place of truth. I think that's an that's a statement that you can make that isn't too controversial. So there is a little bit of a busybody ness with like you know the aunts and the cousins and oh you're graduating now. What are you What are you doing? Do you have a job? Are you going to law school? Do you have a boyfriend? There, there's a lot of truth to that in this community, and I think maybe more so. Like I said, growing up as she did in the Toronto Jewish community, which is even more close knit. So, yeah, that whole, you know, the candor aspect of it, just like diving right in. And of course, as the film progresses and it becomes more of a horror film and as day turns to night and the lighting gets orange and she's roiling <laughs> in hell, uh, you know, she spies. Oh, that's cousin so and so. Ugh, she's really going to bust my chops about these questions. I'm going to try to avoid her. It just becomes a very funny thing. And then she's having basically hallucinations as the cousins are shoving whitefish in their mouth and chewing and being disgusting. It's uh, it's funny stuff. So um, it, I think it's a benign way of exaggerating cultural stereotypes. It's done in a loving way, but it's definitely playing in that space for sure. We'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about Danielle, for sure, but there's a lot of other characters here. To, are there any other kind of standouts for you here in this cast of characters? I mean, not to focus on the shiksa, but I did actually really enjoy uh, Diana Agron's performance as Kim here. And I think what stood out to me about it is like she, like she's an outsider in this situation, and she is kind of set up as an antagonist to Danielle, but you get so much of what she's experienced. Like she's, it's a very empathetic character. I feel like, like because she is an outsider and because her, we know what her husband is, is doing to her and because she has this baby that won't shut up. And I think she does end up being a very sympathetic character in contrast to Danielle, who is just sort of this like, like whirling dervish, uh, you know, but at the same time, Kim is like a character that like she prompts the climax of this movie, you know, like the um, the giving uh, Danielle her baby. And uh, like it's a that's an antagonistic moment. But because of everything we've gotten from her up until that point, it comes across as not an evil act. I don't know. I just really liked I, I like seeing Diana Agron again, too. I mean, she's well within her rights to do what she wants at that moment i think it, you know she has a read on that situation mm-hmm. and once she kind of has that read then she is you know within her rights to act the way she does for sure but at the same time she is kind of set up as our antagonist because she's kind of perfect right because she's mm-hmm. you know she's pretty and she's an entrepreneur and she's this mother and breadwinner and she's got everything together and and uh who, who likes that <laughs> how, how do you not resent that uh even though you know there's nothing that she actually does in the film that we should find off-putting at all you know, it's funny that it's a connection really with the last film that, you know, there aren't too many bad guys in this. You know, even the philandering husband, I think the movie wants you to feel sorry for him a little bit. And it's like kind of a funny thing. And it only really struck me after the movie was over and I was reflecting on it is that he, <laughs> you know, he he's rationalized it to himself. He's like, well, if I'm going to cheat on my wife. I might as well do it and help a girl through law school. Like, you know, he's given himself this, like, I'm going to at least do some good. And then when he finds out that she's lying to him, of the lies told in this movie, that's the one that matters the least. But she was lying to him, and he's a little bit annoyed. Just like, I thought I was helping you through law school, and really, you're just taking my cash. You can't trust someone you meet on a sugar daddy site. Who can you trust? (laughs) (laughs) 
Exactly. But I think that that's a nice little shade of humor that makes it all the more human. And, you know, we're connecting this to Jonathan Demme, the most human of all filmmakers. And uh, it's a funny little extra bit of uh, spin on the ball that's part of what makes this movie so good. You know, it's a, it's an extra dimension that a lesser filmmaker would have left out, I think. Well, well I think on, on that note, uh, maybe we should take a break and make more uh, connections uh, between Shiva Baby and Rachel getting married. Hey, how are you? I'm okay. Good to see you. So sorry. I'm so sorry for your loss. I'll be back in just one second. I just gotta put this down. Hey, mom. Oh, sweetie, you are a lifesaver. Oh. It's really good to see you. How are you? Good. How are you? Could you take this to the living room? Sure. I can totally help you with all this. How was the funeral? Eulogies weren't great. No. Do me a favor. When I go, make a good speech. Oh, you know what? Take the rock along. Okay, I'll take these. Thanks. Follow me. Room. Oh, wait, Mom. Who died? Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Well, one obvious thing here is is we're dealing with two uh, big family gatherings. <laughs> one, one, a super funky wedding in Rachel getting married and uh, a Shiva and Shiva baby. So uh, how, how do those compare and contrast to you, Genevieve? Well, I mean, you don't get much more of a contrast than a wedding and a well, not quite a funeral, but for for the sake of this uh, contrast, we'll call it a funeral. But I, I mean, I think they are similar in the context of these films in that they are both events that come just weighted with all sorts of expectations just for how someone is meant to behave. And as soon as someone enters that scenario who is not behaving in some way, it just has kind of a, a ripple effect because in it it creates this sense of that something's off, you know, and, and obviously like the perfect wedding is, doesn't exist, but everyone wants their wedding to be perfect. Everyone wants to think their wedding is perfect and no one wants to have their shiva or their wake like turned upside down, you know, so because they are events that come with these expectations for behavior, I think they're really ripe to blow up in a really like cinematic um, emotional way uh, the other thing too that they they have in common and, and this is true of family gatherings of all kinds or reunions as well is that the attendees want to present themselves in the best possible light right if you mm-hmm. go to a wedding you go to a shiva you go to a reunion you want to have your shit together you know you want to look good to, you want to have a good story for people about where you are in your life just a kind of a public presentation of yourself and in these movies we have characters lead characters who struggle mightily to make the impression that they might want to make we have have kim who is you know who's in the throes of addiction who is who has this tragic family history that she's responsible for that, that that's right below the surface and she's just in no good you know emotional position to put on the kind of face that she wants to put on but of course she's going to try um and uh, and shiva baby uh danielle is just a rolling disaster <laughs> uh, you know I, uh, I mean i don't know if there's any way that things are going to work out for her i think that i think she probably went into this 
situation thinking I'm just going to bluff my way through. I don't really even know who's, who this is for. It's for a family friend. I'm doing this for my parents. And then she arrives and is kind of blindsided by uh, you know, attendees that she does not want to see. So that and so that's where the kind of the tension in both films arises is from the inability of the lead characters to present themselves perhaps how they would want to. I love uh, in Shiva Baby the detail of her tights getting snagged like like mm-hmm. kind of early early on and her having to to take them off just like in terms of what you're talking about uh, uh, with appearances. It's just a very succinct way of kind of indicating <laughs> that she is not put together, <laughs> and you know, for this event, not having your tights on that's just that's not done. You know, it kind of feels somewhat akin to how uh, Kim is always smoking. You know, and she's she's not the only person smoking at, at, at the wedding, but you know, she's smoking in the house. She's smoking around the the saris. You know, um, she's she's told a couple times to put it out, and it it just feels kind of like a similar detail in terms of our protagonist, uh, you know, not being able to maintain appearances. Yeah, I mean, she's literally, I mean, you know, Danielle is sort of literally laid bare at that moment, right? I mean, like, like all of these things that she, all of these problems she's having are now exposed and suddenly she's dressing provocatively in a Mm -hmm. way that she did not intend. Yeah. The other thing is the protagonists both, they're dreading going to this thing. Neither of them want to be there really. But the reason they don't want to be there is not because they dislike the people they're going to see. It's because they love them so much. And they they want the relationship to be, you know, back on track. But they're before they can get there, they got to deal with these problems that are there. You know, her, her, in, in, in Shiva Baby, her parents just will never accept what she's going through right now, have no real understanding of, you know, what she wants to do with her life. And they don't accept that she's bisexual. They just think it's a, it's a fad or whatever. The father's clueless. No, we don't know what the <laughs> hell he's thinking. And, um, you know, in Rachel getting married, it's, uh, you know, the fact that they have yet to really let it all out of uh, their feelings about about the uh, the tragedy. So, you know, they're n- neither of these central characters are dummies. They know that that's what's the problem. And it's just like, I want my relationship with my family to go well, but it's such an effort. <laughs> it's just a lot of energy to do it. And it would just be easier not to go. But of course, they do go. And, you know, I think in both films, the problems aren't solved, but they're getting better. Right. I mean, they're, these these movies both end up yeah. when you say yeah. they're they're both in a better spot than they were at the beginning, even though neither is, is solved. So um, but, you know, it took, you know, a lot of, you know, in, in Rachel's uh, getting married case, it took crashing the car and getting in a fist fight with her mom. And in this, it takes giving a guy a blowjob in the bathroom when there are old ladies trying to get in <laughs> or, or attempt, attempt, and, attempted, and, uh, yeah. attempted getting turned down for a shot in a yeah. bathroom. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah. I misinterpreted yeah. no, no, that. He, he, yeah. does not, he does not want that. Yeah. He see, it seems like yeah. he wants to, but then he, uh, he thinks better of it. So, but Whoa, it, I got to rewatch. But that makes it like even, like yeah. even more of a moment for her. So like she's yeah, literally on her knees. Whoa. Wait, is it is this is this a something? In a, I must have. Is, does he? I think say he leaves. No, I think he leaves the bathroom. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he he, he leaves. He, he buckles I'm back just, up and leaves. I'm bad. I got to hand in my film <laughs> criticism card. I have no idea. I I don't know. I missed that shot. I guess I just. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But uh, it matters enough that I misinterpreted the scene. That's it occurred to me that 
Uh, with Rachel getting married, Kim has a very clear low point with crashing the car, you know, being, you know, uh, being found the next morning and so on. Uh, I, I'm not sure where Danielle's low point is. In this. It's like a series of, of low then lower points. I mean, it's knocking over the sure. The, the uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you, you can pinpoint but maybe that. You can say the handling the baby is also pretty low. That's a pretty bad spot for her. To be to being found out that she's not she's not even a babysitter. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I you know now that you bring it up, having having her services rejected is pretty low because normally that guy's got to pay for it, and this time he, yeah. he's getting offered for free. And uh, we're blowing your mind. Wow, I don't know. <laughs> um, um, yeah, blow 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 keyword blowing. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, yeah. One thing that now occurs to me in terms of in terms of the, the way these films are connected is I, I feel like Fred Melamed and Bill Irwin have a lot in common. I think these are both fathers who are trying to put the best possible face on a tough situation. I mean, I, I mean, there's is there any ever a moment where Fred Melamed seems like down or, or like incapable of like trying to steer things in a better direction for everybody? I think or, he's also or maybe, or maybe much he's less just aware clueless. about how. Right, yeah, exactly. he's, he's much clueless, less aware he's clueless about in the way that on. in the way that his wife is not. His wife is very engaged and very intense, and in wanting to get answers and wanting to intervene in the situation. I, I don't think that's his style, but I but I do think there's kind of a an effort of him trying to yeah, make things a little the, bit better to try to, to try to lighten the situation to, to, yeah, to make now that you mention it now that you mention it it's it's clear as a bell they are very similar characters and i never really thought of it like that before and his cluelessness could be a little bit of a self mm-hmm. self-defense mechanism it could be like oh dad's head's in the cloud but really, maybe he really does know what's going on but his way much like bill Irwin, is always making funny voices and being all antic and manic Melamed's version of that is just to be like, you know, ahead in the clouds. And it's a similar thing. It's it's a it's a way to just say, no, everything's fine, everything's gonna be good. I'm just gonna keep maintaining this optimistic, I'm gonna press this optimism through until finally it clicks into place, which um which is, you know, exemplified in that van thing. I demand us all to take a van ride together because it's going to be fun, damn it. And we're all going to fit in. We're family. And also, and, and also it's ridiculous the that, you all live, that everyone lives so close. And why would you take a, why would you bother taking the, the ride share? Uh, I love, I yeah, love that. That, yeah. that, that. It's really great. And that, But, you know, I could see, I could see Bill Irwin's character doing that. If he had a van... He'd be doing the same damn thing. There are two peas in a pod. It's well, really quite remarkable. He, he when you insists point it out on like driving Kim around, although we there's a much darker reason <laughs> behind behind right, that. But right. I'm also thinking of uh, in Rachel getting married when uh, Paul gives his his speech at the rehearsal dinner and says he's uh, talking to Sydney's father, makes some common father of the bride comment. Uh, you know, we're just here to smile and write the checks or, or whatever. But that does kind of feel like a a certain fatherly attitude that they are are both embracing in, in these situations. Like I'm just here to, I guess, smile and have a good time. And it, it's funny thinking that, uh, you know, I, I made that joke about, uh, you know, Carol did a really nice job with, with the wedding, but I can absolutely see like Carol being the one who pulled that wedding off while Paul is just, you know, being the clueless, uh, affable mm-hmm. dad figure. I, that's absolutely true of, of my own father and father-in-law. They both have that position of being just 
presiding over the situation, not really, you know, from a little, you know, they're happily sponsoring or observing, but not necessarily getting their hands dirty and getting in there and that, that will be us, Scott. We're going to be super involved, right? We're going to be aware <laughs> and not never clueless and and uh, and hands on, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'll probably, I'll probably just cry a lot. Um, so, uh, one of the interesting connections between these two movies is tradition and how they 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 play on tradition because rachel getting married this is not a wedding you would describe as a traditional wedding at all it is it is a as we talked about in our first episode a mishmash you've got uh you know everything from you know the processional you know music or whatever replaces the music when there's with the bride and groom's names are are repeated uh, harmoniously that's that's not traditional oh, i thought the, you were going to talk about the electric guitar uh, a wedding march which i believe was played by jonathan demi's son brooklyn oh, demi okay. yeah 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 and then and then the and then uh um you have have sydney doing uh for a Harp track Smoon, from a right? uh from neil a young. Uh, neil young record and uh and any, they're wearing saris it's just there's nothing about it that is <laughs> that is traditional it is it is entirely an artisanal occasion <laughs> um but something that is you know suitable or re- reflective i guess of of the uh people getting married which is which you love to see i mean if you've been you know all, all the great weddings are always weddings that reflect you know the tastes and the the values of the people getting married, but then of course, but the the shiva also seems much more traditional. I mean, is there any way in which that shiva is untraditional, Jordan? In your experience, it, it seems pretty straightforward. Uh, no, I mean that's part of what makes the movie work is that you're dropping. You know, if if um, Danielle didn't show up, that shiva would be just a classic shiva, so to speak. You know, and then she comes in with all of her her baggage or as we would say her michigas and uh you know everything goes on its head but no it's it's the exact opposite i mean the the wedding and rachel getting married is a is is made up it comes from no tradition because it's a blender of everything whereas the shiva and shiva baby is kind of a classic you know uh reform conservative Jewish Shiva. I mean, it's not ultra religious because the men and the women aren't separated and, uh, you know, they're not they're not praying constantly. But it's, you know, it's kind of by the book, you know, and uh, everybody knows what place everybody knows what to do. You know, uh, they they know, you know, there's the ceremonial hand washing. They know when it's time to pray. They go in this room. They know what food to bring. And they all speak, you know, they speak with Yiddish inflected English to each other. And it's like, everybody's kind of getting back on the bicycle they know how to ride whereas uh, the other wedding is like you know ooh, you know this is unique so uh nobody's been to that kind of wedding before <laughs> and, and, and shiva baby and jordan correct me if i'm if i'm wrong in saying this but it seems like it the tradition that we're seeing is kind of for the most part divorced from any sense of devoutness like it almost it feels more like culturally traditional than religiously like we do have a a little prayer based moment but it seems like all the tradition is kind of backgrounded because like as you said everyone is kind of going through the motions you know like they don't seem to be very connected to what they're doing yeah no if this were a more devout group, you know, Orthodox Jews or, or Hasidic Jews, or Haredi Jews, you know, what, whatever you want to call them, then it would be very different. There would be a set playbook of certain prayers and certain things. And and like I say, even the, the men and the women would be separated. But, you know, it, uh, this is more of just like, oh, 
And even even that other thing that I mentioned, uh, which is a common thing about how the the bereaved are supposed to be seated on low chairs and they're not supposed to get up, you know, like, oh, we'll take care of it for you. You know, we'll get that for you. That isn't even really in this because, of course, we don't even really see the bereaved, you know, the great line who died. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely these are cultural Jews. You know, these are not the most devout Jewish people. These are Jews who have had bacon in their lives (laughs) for sure. I mean, a hundred percent. These are not the most, uh, but you know, but they are still proud to be Jewish. I mean, they identify that way, and and that's that. It's a key element of their of their identity. So uh, another connection we should probably talk about is just the anxiousness of both these movies, which are often filmed in such a way that reflect the states of their protagonists, which is uh, being in a surrounded by people that they are necessarily comfortable with and having to perform, uh, as we talked about before, kind of the best version of themselves they can. And then watching those performances crack. I mean, I mean, uh, when Maya asked Danielle, wasn't she wearing tights? She says, no. Just because I think instinctively she's lying about everything. It's like she doesn't even have to lie about this in, in that moment, it, but she does. And then by contrast, Kim is kind of trying to beat people to the punch by presenting herself as a loser, making jokes about her situation. And uh, I don't think either strategies really work. Of course, I mean, there wouldn't be really much of a movie if they, if they did. But I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in everyone's take on those that aspect of both these films. I mean, with Kim, and uh, allow me to get a little armchair uh, psychiatrist here, but it, it seems like the way she keeps drawing attention to herself at this wedding seems to stem from the knowledge that people are talking about her <laughs> already. And it seems like she's like looking for some sort of control over her, her narrative in this wedding. And, you know, the way that she chooses to do that is obviously very, very self-centered and, and awkward to watch, but it's... Like, if you think about it in context of her feeling not in control of this situation and how people are perceiving her in this situation, it is a way for her to sort of regain control of that in this social situation. I think Danielle kind of lacks the ability. I mean, I guess that's where the comedy comes from. But but I think she lacks the ability to manage a situation like this. She lacks the ability to, to cover up everything that's going on i mean she's she just constantly sort of steps in it and makes mistakes and isn't comfortable lying as much as she has had to lie and i guess that's where the uncomfortable aspect of the film lies is just like the moment she's thrown into the situation and and she realizes that she's got her ex-girlfriend over here and then the sugar daddy and his wife over there and this baby that the situation becomes unmanageable for her. She she can't finesse it at all. And, and I think it kind of speaks to her situation as a person who doesn't have anything set. I mean, there's a fluidity to her sexuality, certainly, but also fluidity to her life and to her future. And to there's just nothing set at all. Um, there's no plan, uh, which which you know gives a sense of excitement and, and, and possibility, but also it's hard to kind of hide all of the cracks that are opening up everywhere uh, because nothing is settled for her yeah i mean it's funny what, what genevieve just said earlier i thought was was, was quite <laughs> brilliant actually that, that she um kim constantly like making self-deprecating jokes that's the only thing she's got left is to like she knows everybody's talking about this so i'm going to try to take control of this runaway train here and at least try to like, if somebody's going to be talking about the elephant in the room, let me be the first one to do it. And uh, Danielle doesn't even have that yet because she's still trying out this new thing. You know, if she if she were a true 
sugar baby, she wouldn't give a shit that her sugar daddy was married and has a kid. You know, what does she care? It's not a real relationship, but she does care. And that's evidence of like her really not knowing what the heck she wants to do, what she wants to be. She probably hasn't had that many intimate relationships. And, uh, you know, she's just very young and confused. So she can't even, you know, she doesn't even have a story to stick to like Kim does. So it's uh, hopefully not that she should look to Kim as a role model in any way, but uh, hopefully she's not going to end up like that. But, uh, you know, that that's a, an interesting differential between the two of characters that are otherwise rather similar or certainly in, in a very similar situation. At the same time, I think we do see Danielle like exhibiting a little bit of the same behavior of like trying to if not control the situation, at least like get it back on her own terms. Like I'm thinking of when she goes to into the bathroom to send the the picture of, of herself. And again, and again, with All with right, the right, offering yeah. a blowjob, like I feel like they're a little similar to what we see Kim doing because they're like kind of self-destructive acts done in the or, or at least like self-effacing acts done in the name of putting your your suffering on your in your own terms. You know, I do briefly want to touch on like a small connection between these two films with something that really stuck out to me, especially in terms of these being uh, both female protagonists is the way that food and body issues kind of pop up mm-hmm. around the fringes of, of both of these films. Like when, uh, you know, there's ki- there's multiple suggestions in Rachel getting married that Rachel may have had an eating disorder at some point, or Kim is projecting that onto her as, as a way to... It's the first thing Kim talks about. When, yeah, when literally. She's... Yeah, she says, like, you're so tiny. I think she says, Are, you look like you're an Asian woman, which, you know, yeah. not great, Kim. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and it, it, like I said, it, it sort of pops up again throughout. And at the same time, you know, we see Paul kind of offering food to his to his daughters uh, multiple times. And she keeps saying, oh, re- she keeps saying, oh, rehab mm-hmm. makes you fat. Rehab yeah. makes you fat. And of course, she's, she's Anne Hathaway. Sure. She looks fantastic. I mean, but it's... Uh, but also it, a it's, former model. It's a funny you, thing. You, you know, like, the, so that's right, all right. tied in there, too. So... You know, it's not excavated in any meaningful ways. It's certainly not uh, at the level of the stuff with Ethan and the other sort of trauma that the family has endured. But, you know, uh, it, it's around the fringes. And in the same way, in, in Shiva Baby, we have sort of this runner of her being offered food and but it kind of on the other side of things like saying she looks like she's put on weight and I couldn't quite get a read on what was being suggested there because it was it was being said like sort of in a complimentary manner that made me wonder if like she also had a history of disordered eating or what I don't know but you know there's definitely something a little off about both characters relationship with food I think. I mean, uh, Danielle is like putting carbs on and off of that plate, you know. Uh, yeah. Which, which I think, I think speaks to both a, a desire for comfort food, then followed by, you know, some sort of guilt about consuming that much macaroni or whatever <laughs> she's about yeah. to try to eat. Um, so uh, that's a nice character touch, you know, in both films. It, it, neither one has to has to be there, but it, it it is an aspect of both of these characters that that um, is fascinating. This just reminded me of something um, because I'd forgotten it from the first time I saw Rachel getting married is the implication that Kim is bisexual 
Is there an implication that she and her sponsor or whomever had a hmm. fling? Oh, that's how I read it, too. The whole, you know, I never wrote your cell number. That was a mistake. I'm lucky I had my job. That, that's how I read that. I was a little confused yeah. as to yeah. how she shows up at the end if there is no cell exchange or whatever. But, but you know, whatever. It doesn't ruin the movie <laughs> for me. Yeah. No, I mean, she gave the address and said, pick me up on, on Sunday night or whatever it was. But, yeah, there's that line, like, please don't mention it. It could be anything, but I get the impression that they had a tryst yeah, or something. Too. I don't know what that brings to the movie. I don't know why it's there other than just to make it that Kim has a, a lot going on in her life, I guess. It's just what it is. Like, she's constantly, there's always something happening. There's never a mellow day in her life, I guess. There's always some kind of potential controversy Well, she's always in crisis. That's what, what Rachel says, right? Yeah. right? A life in crisis. Yeah. I think that's yeah. just good filmmaking on both films is, is when you have characters who are that fully realized and that thought through. I mean, so you can have, you know, this little detail about food that isn't like isn't make or break for the movie, but it, it, it gives it that much more dimension. I mean, it's like it's all it's like the, the Mike Lee method. It's like, you know, you have these actors who in collaboration with Mike Lee will create these entire character histories and, and load them up with all this detail. I mean, and some of that detail, much, probably most of that detail doesn't make it into the movie, but the fact that it's been that thought through, that these characters have been that thoroughly, you know, realized, that comes through and that, and that kind of makes the difference between, you know, a pretty good movie and a, and a great movie. I would be really interested to see Jenny Lumet's script that was handed to um demi because they didn't develop it together she she had something and i'd be very curious to see what it was and you know versus what's ultimately on on the screen yeah just because the movie is so uh you know it's not it's not a tight script you know there's a lot flying around all over the place and i'm just kind of curious you know how much intentional disarray was added to it in a way yeah, I, I'd be curious. Though I think the I think I think I did see something about a lot of you know personal detail from her her life kind of making it into the movie. Well, I'm mean, certainly as someone who you know she's connected to show business and the music and in the music industry in various yeah. ways too. And, and I think she I think she has a mul- yeah. multiracial family background too, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Lena, she's Lena Horn. Lena Horn Lena is, is her grand yeah. grand uh, grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, and the fact is, like, like I think this was kind of our, one of the first um, notices we got from her, and she's had quite a career since. I mean, she's been she's all over the place now. Yeah, I get the sense also. My my sense is that she's also uncredited, and she's she's a, a prolific script doctor, and on in, in ways that we don't necessarily hear about all the time either. One major element to both films is the soundtrack, uh, both the use of music and then this the ambiance of the thing. Because I mean, I you know, as I was saying at the beginning of this segment, I was reminded so much of the Paul Thomas Anderson movie uh, Punch Drunk Love when I saw Shiva Baby, based on the intensity of the film and also the way that intensity is underlined by a by a relentless soundtrack a soundtrack that keeps the tension and keeps the uh the nerves raised and i think it's kind of a big important part of the tenor of that film and of course the music and in rachel getting married is so essential and also the ambiance there the way that the way the dialogue is integrated with with the music the way that voices kind of kind of it's not altman-esque exactly things that the the dialogue's a little clearer i guess in rachel getting married that the overlapping is not as 
uh, thorough, but it's there. And I, I think you want to have that. You do have that sense of everyone coming together for a wedding. It's not, it's not a lot of isolated dialogue scenes. Um, so that's something worth uh, noting in both films. Yes, for sure. Yeah, and also uh, um, Shiva Baby has a great original yeah, score. Ariel Marks, I believe, uh, did it. That sounds uh, that sounds correct. Yeah, when I interviewed Emma Selgman, she told me something which I then read in other interviews. It was one of clearly one of her talking points. So it wasn't like I had a great exclusive. But when she started developing the score with the soundtrack with, with the composer, it was the composer who said to her, "Oh, you want a horror score." And that's when a light bulb went off and Emma was like, oh, I guess I kind of made a horror movie here. I never thought of it that way. But, you know, when the composer said that, she didn't say, no, 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 I don't want a horror. She's like, oh, yeah, I guess that's, yeah, I do want that. So it sort of is a horror score, you know, with the strings and the plucked strings and whatnot. You know, it definitely adds to the movie a great deal for sure. I don't think there's, there's no... um there's no in-world music in the film, no. I don't think. There's no scene where they where a radio's on or anything. But the score really does do a lot of heavy lifting. And I don't think is there an original score in Rachel Getting Married? No, or is it it's all just the, the wandering from, musicians. Yeah, someone has a, yeah, has a credit the for music, but but yeah, it is it is all uh, incidental. The guys with the ouds in the in the dining room and whatnot. I mean, the first the, you know, she walks in the house. That's the first thing you see is some guy plucking an oud <laughs> sitting on oh, the uh, right. yeah. stairwell or something. It's like, you know, it's it's funny because um, and Genevieve, this is something I think you said last week when we were talking about the wedding. You're like, oh, I wish I was so cool <laughs> to go to a wedding like this. And I've known some people who kind of exist in that world. In my wife's side of the family, she has a, a string of cousins and there's a couple of cousins in there that are, you know, they're not quite like from that movie. But like when and I remember going to some of their weddings and it being like, yeah, I think they even wore saris or something <laughs> like that. There's one they did a thing. Well, he's a Buddhist, although he's from you know Long Island, but he's a Buddhist and he studied in Thailand or someplace, and you know it was like a whole ceremony like that, and it was really cool. I mean, it was like there was a lot of cool music and stuff and interesting aspects to it, and, and it made me think of that when I rewatched it. It's like it really gets that vibe. You know, I've had some friends from the Hudson Valley. I've been up to Woodstock a few <laughs> times, man. I mean, I've known some of those people. I used to date. A girl who, who whose mother lived at Woodstock, and it rem- and that's there's some truth to it, you know. It's uh, it's pretty wild. So uh, it really taps into something fun, I think. Uh, before we we move on from the the sound of both of these films, uh, I I feel like we have to return again to the crying baby in, in, in Shiva Baby, which is not oh, quite. Sure. It, it's not music, obviously, but I think it's an important part of the film's soundtrack, especially if we're thinking of it in terms of being this anxiety-inducing horror movie. Because you know, I I mean. I don't have children, and I, I realize that I'm, I'm I'm talking to to people who do and have uh, you know uh, a lot more experience with uh, screaming babies than I do. But there are there are few things I think that can like just set you on edge than a screaming baby, where a screaming baby is not supposed to be, and I think it's used very very effectively uh, in in Shiva Baby. And if you're a parent, you're used to it. And so I think, right. I think, I think as parents, you're kind of like, like, what's the big deal? My baby's screaming. I hear it all the time. And I, I don't think you're in an environment like that. You're not necessarily expecting, you don't necessarily put other people's feelings into consideration. Though I would, I would say they're highly aware of this, though. I mean, if you go, yeah. to, if you're going to a, 
Oh, I just uh, myself. I if was you're a going to terrible event, parent of a baby. <laughs> <laughs> really disrespectful of everyone else. But if, you just, if you're going to an event like that, again, like you, know, you want to put on your best face and, and you want, you know, one of those things that you want your kid to be not a problem. And, uh, and when they become a problem, I mean, it's both kind of a, a way of raising the anxiety level even further in Shiva Baby. But it's also, of course, a reminder of the stakes here, of, the, of this presence of, in the room, of the fact that this... Uh, sugar daddy is in fact a has a has a wife and, and small child and and so it, it's almost it's like the beating of a telltale heart or something every time that baby starts screaming <laughs> uh, for it, you know the way yeah. it's going to play on Danielle's conscience and also what does it represent for Danielle it's like you know it represents tradition right I mean there's a, she's with a lot of grandparents and old old women who probably want her to she just graduated from college she ought to get married and start having mm-hmm. kids you know i mean and what she's dating women what she's a sex worker and majoring in feminist media what the hell she should start pumping out the kids early you know and and of course she rejects that because she's a modern although she's not quite sure what the hell she wants to do with her life she she knows it ain't that or certainly not yet and then having that crying baby is just like in your face lady you know this is what they want out of you so it's uh yeah that's a good point the soundtrack it's it's the dissonance on the score the horror the horror movie score with that added dissonance and it actually made me kind of key into a moment in rachel getting married that is different but i feel like kind of taps into similar emotional territory where um I don't know. They're they're gathered and they're having a fraught conversation, and the musicians are uh, outside playing. and And Kim's like, "Can you tell them to knock it off?" You know, like she, <laughs> like she kind of snaps at, at having this omnipresent music around, and especially during a very difficult moment. Uh, you, you know, and it it becomes not welcome there. Um, it becomes fraught. Apparently, and I'm going off of the Wikipedia page here, but apparently in the DVD commentary, Demi said that that was all improvised like Hathaway had complained about the music interfering with the mood and he said okay so do something about it and she improvised the line can you tell them to knock it off and I guess Anna Devere Smith being great you know just improvised going out there to tell them to to stop playing so it was all like an improvised moment but I think it going back to Shiva Baby, it kind of taps into a similar like discomfort when things don't sound the way a moment feels. Yeah. And she doesn't have the option to tell the baby to shut up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, Rachel Getting Married is currently streaming on HBO Max and it's rentable on the usual services. Uh, Shiva Baby is an affordable rental. It's only seven bucks and I think all four of us can highly recommend you check that one out. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world is good for you? 
Uh, so I just want to draw people's attention to it. It'll, it'll be a little while before you know when this comes out. But uh, we recently lost uh, two fantastic directors who had kind of somewhat parallel careers in some ways. That's uh, Monty Hellman and, and Richard Rush. You know, both very much uh, worth digging into the filmography. The people kind of worked at the margins for much of their career. They kind of came up in sixties uh, B movies. Hellman is director of Tulane Blacktop, one of my, one of my all time favorite movies. We covered it at the Dissolve, and, and toward, toward, I think it was last movie of the week we. we finished um, Mm -hmm. there, but um, it was unavailable for years and um, then widely available thanks to releases on on Blu-ray from first from Anchor Bay and and Criterion and and highly recommend the Criterion edition. But, but, you know, it kind of fittingly, it's, it's disappeared in the streaming era. You cannot see it, but you can see easily uh, another film I like of his called The Shooting. It's one of two westerns he shot back to back with Jack Nicholson. The other one is Riding the Whirlwind. Uh, they're both worth checking out. I think The Shooting is, by several degrees, uh, the better movie. Uh, not in no small part because it has has Warren Oates as a co star. That's always a plus. But it's sort of a um, unusual, um, you know. I, I tried to avoid the word existential because I don't think Hellman liked it all that much. But but let's just throw that out there. Uh, Western, which which, which you know, characters lost in, in in the wilderness together. Who um, and it's not really quite clear what the relationship to everyone is at any given point. It is um, typical with of Hellman's career. It, it uh, was made and uh, then uh, never released to theaters. It went directly to television in the United States. Uh, as did Ride the Whirlwind, but is now available on HBO Max. Uh, the other one is uh, Richard Rush, who spent much of the '60s making uh, biker movies um, and other other such such fair uh, but interesting biker movies. He made a movie called Psych Out, which is another kind of uh, look at the hippie scene, which was made for by a producer for a producer named uh, Dick Clark. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the real uh, the real standout in his in his filmography is a film called The Stunt Man, for which he was nominated for Best Director. It's a 1980 film. Uh, Starring Peter O'Toole as a as a uh, director with um, I don't know delicious of grandeur what would you call it Scott I know you're a fan of this film as well yeah I mean that that's about right I mean it also is kind of a play on P- just Peter O'Toole's Peter O'Toole-ness is kind of well exploited in that movie and it's about you know movies and illusion and and mm-hmm. uh, well you know it's probably best experience not explained you know I'm sure I could explain it so anyway but it's also on HBO Max so uh, if you want to check out two great films from two directors uh, who were often under the radar and who are no longer with us um, the uh, the shooting and uh, and uh, the stuntman are both on HBO Max and, and you know and try, color of night you're not going to color of night you're not going to bring pass bring that on in. that one yeah I'm going to pass right. on that one but uh, Tulane Blacktop please try to see it in some way if you can yeah uh, Jordan, what, what, how about you? What, what can you recommend for us? Jumping off of Shiva Baby, uh, you know, like I said, I did I did interview um, Emma Seligman for Times of Israel, and uh, which is one of my outlets, and we kind of focused on the Jewish aspects of it. And so she and I got into a little bit of some of our favorite Jewish movies. You know, she also mentioned you know, some of the ones that, that were inspirational for this film. And I think, you know, Krisha is one that's ah, pretty know, obvious right? connection. Gosh. They're very similar which is not a Jewish film, nor is um, Opening Night was another movie, Cassavetti's Opening Night, that she said was sort of an inspiration. But, you know, what I love so much about Shiva Baby is that I, I, I feel like, it, you know, it does it right. You know, it, it's a kind of a, an instant classic Jewish film. So what are some of the others that you may want to see? And not something like, you know, Schindler's List, oh God, which is a great movie, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But, uh, um, you know, it's heavy duty. So I'm not going to mention one biggie because I know Scott's going to bring mm-hmm. it up himself, but I 
immediately say dittos to that um another one which i'm sure anybody listening to this podcast is familiar with and loves which is a serious Mm -hmm. man the coen brothers film which is just hilarious and just gets better every time you watch it and then i also want to bring up one that is not as well known uh which is a movie by paul mazursky called enemies a love story which i uh just to give you the basic premise it's set uh, in in America after the Second World War, a bunch of refugees from Europe, and there's a guy. I want to say, just, I want to say Joel Silver. But that's not his name, Ron Silver. Yeah, Ron <laughs> Silver. It's Ron Silver, and he thinks he lost his wife during the war. And he comes to America, and uh, he he gets a new wife, but then his wife did survive, or did she? Is she a ghost? I don't know. Uh, but it's about uh, refugees from the Second World War in America, uh, and it's um, funny, but it's also uh, really, you know, it's all about sort of getting over what they experienced in the war. Uh, so it's like the pawnbroker, but more fun. <laughs> and then, um, uh, uh, and then another one that I'll, I'll bring up, just sort of th- these ones that I think just really nail it. <sighs> A serious man is big, but the best Jewish movie ever made is Barry Levinson's Avalon. Uh, and if you've never seen that movie, uh, you must, because then you will get to know my grandparents, because it's about every Jewish grandparent. <laughs> it's it's just like scary how much it's about my grandparents. But what's m- really interesting about Avalon is that it is they never explicitly say that they're Jewish. I mean, they clearly are. And there is like concentration camp survivors in there but the words are never spoken like like you know they never say the mafia in the godfather right it's just it's, it's never brought up because it's such it's such a i don't know that's just the choice they made so barry levinson's uh, avalon came out in 1990 and it's just you know beyond important to me it's just i can't even get into it in a, in a blurb so that's the one that you got to see Scott, what's the one movie that you were going to bring that, up that I, I, completely uh, that I left out? Stole your thunder on that would be uh, Crossing Delancey by Joan Micklin Silver. I had a chance to go through her filmography a little bit because she also recently died. Uh, Hester Street was kind of her big breakthrough, but I also saw a little movie called Between the Lines that she made in 1977 about working at an alt weekly, a Village Voice like alt weekly that is just amazingly sharp in all of the anxieties that people have about being journalists for the you know carry through the the decades it was kind of amazing to see but crossing delancey i mean this was 1988 it was a time when warner brothers could spend four million dollars and make you know on a flyer to make a you know jewish romantic comedy and to do one with I think that's very minor, but also done with a tremendous amount of specificity and, and heart. Uh, it stars Amy Irving as a clerk at a New York bookstore who is, uh, you know, at a crossroads romantically. I think she, I think there's a lot of pressure on her to figure out where she wants to go in that department. She has an interest. She has an interest in a sort of snooty author played by Jerome Crabb. And, uh, and then her Bubby wants to set her up with uh, a, a nice Jewish man, uh, pickle vendor played by Peter Riegert. And uh, she is somewhat embarrassed by that prospect at, at first. And it really has rejected that part of her life and her, her background. And then she starts to kind of warm to it a little bit. And who cannot, how can you not warm to Peter Riegert in this movie? He's so earnest and adorable. But it's just a really sophisticated, subtle 
you know, a detail-oriented romantic comedy. You know, it doesn't swing for the fences. It doesn't really need to. You know, it's got a semi, I don't know if romantic is the right word, but it's got kind of an interesting scene at a bris that you wouldn't necessarily see in other movies. So I thought thought it was a very nice little film. And, and, And also... Yeah, testament to Amy Irving's appeal as a leading woman. I think it's a gem. What do you think? Right, Jordan? It's so good. It's perfect. It's a perfect movie. I mean, just even just thinking about it makes me glow. I just love it so much. I mean, uh, I, I mentioned Avalon. If you want to meet my parents, if you want to meet my uh, my gay aunt, you watch uh, Crossing the Lancy. I mean, it's just about, you know, late 80s feminism and, uh, you know, figuring out uh, how much of the old world you want to keep, how much of the modern world is right for you. That pickle stand on the on uh, what was uh, Essex Street uh, did exist for like a really long time. That was a real place, and they kept a poster of Crossing Glancy forever. It, it closed in like 2005 or something, and they tried to move it, and it didn't work. They Somebody bought the name rights, but it wasn't the same pickles. It's tough now. You got to go out to Long Island now to get the real pickles out of a barrel, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, it's just such a lovely film. Uh, and, you know, uh, talking about these, you know, quote unquote Jewish movies, I mean, obviously they connect to me in a special way because they remind me of family or I'm, you know, I, I can catch the ironically called Easter eggs, if you will. Um, but, you know, you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy these movies. I think you can recognize when something's good, something's good. You know, you can watch a really good movie steeped in, you know, Filipino culture and not really get the reference, but you know when it's legit, you know? So all these examples, I think, are, are something that, uh, you know, people should really check out because they're, they're just tremendous movies. Yes. Genevieve, how about yourself? What do you got? Well, since we were talking about a Jonathan Demi movie, my, my first instinct was to recommend uh, Ricky and the Flash. But I thought, surely I have recommended yeah. Ricky and the Flash on this podcast before. And I definitely have. So mm-hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm not going to double dip there. But, uh, you know, suffice to say, I think it is one of uh, Demi's more underappreciated films. But I think we've all got your back on that one. I, I, that's a movie that really was kind of misunderstood and dismissed uh, unfairly. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. But instead, I'm going to recommend something completely different different uh, from both this pairing and from uh, the sort of recommendations I, I, I normally make. I mentioned that watching Shiva Baby was was like kind of an equivalent uh, of watching a horror movie for me. And uh, I'm going to recommend a horror movie. <laughs> Guys, I know. I know. Well, well uh, Steve, my fiance, does enjoy the occasional horror film. So, you know, I do uh, occasionally, you know, uh, acquiesce to his desire to watch a scary movie together. And uh Late last year, a, a movie came out that piqued my interest because it uh, involves one of my uh, kind of favored premises, which is the, the body swap. I, I do have a soft spot for the body swap, usually comedy. And I thought this movie was going to be more in the vein of a comedy than it is. But the movie Freaky is actually a pretty serious slasher movie, which I was not uh, quite prepared for going in. I was expecting something much more horror comedy, which which sends me my bag. And it is not not funny. I mean, you have Vince Vaughn portraying a teenage girl. Uh, so the premise of the movie is Vince Vaughn is a uh, aging serial killer uh, who, due to some nonsense with a magical dagger and Friday the 13th, swaps bodies with a teenage girl uh, played by Catherine Newton. 
and they spend the rest of the movie uh Catherine Newton you know stalking as a stalking after herself <laughs> you know uh, Vince Vaughn playing a teenage girl so you know there's there's a certain amount of comedy inherent in that but yeah there's like some pretty gruesome kills in this movie i, I definitely uh, had you know I, I was cowering a bit but i ultimately enjoyed it uh for the same reason i am usually drawn to body swap premises which is the performances i think it's a really you know kind of fun actorly exercise to put yourself in the in the body of someone else and uh, i'm really impressed with both of them but especially vince vaughn because i think vince vaughn playing a teenage girl sounds just like it's going to be kind of insufferable and hand wavy and little girl um and it does he doesn't really do that i think he there he pulls back just enough to actually sell some of the more ridiculous beats that this premise leads to so you know like it, it's not like a great movie, but it's a fun movie, I think, and uh, was was a good date night movie for Steve and I. So I'm I'm uh, happy to recommend Freaky. Did any of you see it? Yeah, for just a moment when you said body swap movie, for I thought you were going to say we watched Possessor. <laughs> like, oh, good <laughs> uh, No, yeah, no, I, I saw Freaky. I like Freaky for all the re- same reasons you did, and, and uh, uh, it's got real heart too. Like the scene where Vaughn with the teenage girl's love interest in, in mm-hmm. the back of the car where it's, it's, it's this moment where the words like, you know, they can have a real connection. It's really matter what body, yeah. uh, this, this, this guy's talking to, um, it's really sweet. And, but you're right though. It, it is a straight up slasher film. And at least in the, in the moments when it has on screen kills, they're, they're quite clever slash gruesome. Yeah. Wow. So I think I think Genevieve at this point you're ready for martyrs. You're ready for hereditary. <laughs> you're, God, you're you're ready for all kinds of stuff. No, now, no. Right? I, I I only do like like one one a quarter. I think is is my max. So if you like, if you the last time you, where you've been like, oh, I can't. I had to turn that off. That horror film was just too much yeah. for me. Well, let, if you like this one, you should check out Happy Death Day, which I've recommended. Yeah, 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 yeah it's by the that. same director, right? The same director. Christopher Landon. I think that's actually a little easier on the a little easier on Scream on the squeamish viewer than uh, Freaky is. Yeah, I, I definitely do better in the horror comedy realm than, than anywhere else. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will drop on May 11th and May 18th. Genevieve, what do we have on tap? The second adaptation of the video game Mortal Kombat made its bloody, bone-crushing debut on HBO Max and in theaters recently. And because it's a movie and not a video game, it added all kinds of dense mythology to the spectacle of various fighters using special moves to tear out each other's vital organs and hold them up in triumph. As an American studio movie attempting to operate in the Chinese martial arts tradition, the film reminded us of John Carpenter's 1986 action comedy Big Trouble in Little China, an irreverent goof on the genre. There are even some moments in Mortal Kombat that seem to pay direct homage. So in our next set of episodes, we'll hop aboard the Porkchop Express and talk about these two westernized forays through eastern territory. So in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Rachel getting married, Shiva Baby, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Thipps. 
Oh, I'm a freelance writer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at kfips 3000 I link to what I write there. I release it. I write a lot for, for GQ, uh, TV Guide. Uh, it's been a while for the Vulture, but I'm from, from Vulture, but I'm sure I'll be back in there at some point. Ditto the Ringer, um, you know, Polygon, or whatever. Uh, I'm out there. I'm writing for people. <laughs> Genevieve? Uh, I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and I cannot wait to commission a Keith Phipps piece in the near future. <laughs> uh, Jordan? Much like Mr. Phipps, I'm a little bit everywhere. Uh, lately, what did I do lately? I, I recently wrote a, um, or I revisited for 420, happy 420 uh, not that long ago. I revisited the works of Cheech and Chong, <laughs> some, of which, uh, some of which was uh, better than I remembered and some of which is just god awful. But it was good to watch five Cheech and Chong movies wow. in one day. <laughs> um, but, you know, my work, my work can be read in uh, Vanity Fair and um, uh, Times of Israel and... Uh, the Guardian? Know, where else? Uh, Decider. Decider. The Guardian once in a while. Yeah. Eh, not so much these days. Bummer. Uh, see, that's a... That is a uh, mutual decision. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can leave that in. Um, but anyway, um, uh, and uh, yeah, decider. And I'll write for you, man. I'll write for if you got if you want me to hear my thoughts. I'll put them down on a piece of paper and email wow. them to you. So uh, let's make it happen. Um, uh, so I am on when you're on Twitter. What? Where can people find you on Twitter? Oh, Jay Hoffman. J H O F F M A. Very good. There'd be some competition for that handle, I would think. But you were, were you early adopter. It's a funny story. You want to hear a funny story? I originally, I am an early adapter. I was almost under the one millionth person to join Twitter. I have a friend who was like the 600,000th, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. I was like the one millionth and 30th, you know, really in there. But at the time, I was very brand loyal to Jay Hoffman 6. Even though I probably could have grabbed Jay Hoffman, I was Jay Hoffman 6. And then I wanted jay hoffman alone but somebody else had it but never used it like they had it it was an egg and no one tweeted from it and i wanted it and i was annoyed and then i had a friend and he was friends with a woman who was a big shot at william morris endeavor like she was the personal assistant to the guy that jeremy piven's character is based on in entourage (laughs) Like she was like the like the head assistant. So like you know, you think of oh an assistant to an agent, but like no, she made like a zillion dollars because she was like the assistant to the main dude. So and I knew her a little bit through my friend, and we were having lunch, and she was there. I'm like, and, she, and and my friend Mike's like, oh she can get she can get you something with Twitter. I'm like, oh can you get me the Jay Hoffman handle because this idiot never uses it. Five minutes later, it was wow. mine. <laughs> it's like it, what a tale, like, right? What, what, where can we find you on Twitter? And we, this is, we get this incredible story. Uh, it's just weird. It's just weird how how you know you wouldn't think, and it was like okay, cool. Now I have Jay Hoffman. Has it helped my life in any way? That with the six, no. Who gives a shit? But uh, I don't yeah, have the six but anymore. It's simple. You can find me at Scott <laughs> unders- at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at uh, the New York Times, The Ringer of Vulture, uh, The Guardian, other fine uh, publications. I'm also the editor in chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Our absent co-host Tasha Robinson is the film and TV editor at Polygon, and uh, she's at at Tasha Robinson on Twitter. 
You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Jordan, again, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute treat. Honored to be here. I mean, Tasha, you know, if she ever takes another vacation, you know, I'd be happy to to help out again. But I'm sure we all welcome her back next week. For sure. And uh, thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Next time.